Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 132nd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, managed cybersecurity, and managed information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is law firms take notice. The U.S. is cracking down on ransomware gangs. Today, our guest is Ariel Parnes, Chief Operating Officer at Mitiga. He is a retired colonel of the Israeli Defense Forces 8200 Cyber Unit, where he served 20-plus years in a wide range of roles in the areas of intelligence, information technology, offensive and defensive cyber operations, and cyber warfare. He was awarded the prestigious Israeli Defense Prize for technological breakthroughs in the cyber field. It's great to have you with us today, Ariel. Hey, John. Great to be here. Hey, Sharon. It's great to be here, and thank you for in, uh, inviting me. It's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward for a very interesting conversation. Well, thank you, Ariel. We certainly understand your depth of cybersecurity expertise, but would you tell our listeners a little more about your company, what it does, and what your role is there so that they have contacts before we ask some of the other questions? Mitiga is an incident response and readiness company for cloud and hybrid environments. We have an innovative solution that dramatically reduces the impact of a cyber attack by accelerating the investigation when it happens and by preparing the organization for a cyber attack. We are a global company based out of New York, London, and Tel Aviv, and I'm one of the three co-founders. I'm the CEO and responsible for designing and delivering our innovative solutions for clients worldwide. Ariel, a large portion of our listeners are, are law firms, and as you know, they're one of the most popular targets for the ransomware gangs because they hold so much valuable confidential data of many individuals and bunches of companies, as well as government confidential, and, and sometimes it's even classified data. Some of the recent news that we've heard about, which is really important to them as, as the government steps up the war against ransomware which is kind of why you're here today. So can you tell us about the five, I pronounce it REVIL, some folks I know pronounce it are evil because they really are evil, arrests in, in November, and why those arrests were significant? During November, we have witnessed the arrestment of five people by law enforcement. That was a result of a joint effort of some say more than 70 countries, uh, including US, UK, France, and Germany, together with the FBI and the Europol and other authorities, to fight against one of the most powerful cybercrimes or ransomware groups, the REVIL or R-EVIL or ransomware evil. This uh, REVIL group was uh, and is still one of the most powerful groups out there. They have been conducting more than thousands of uh, ransomware infections. I think the number I have is about 5,000 ransomware infections and not only that, but also providing the ransomware capability for others to use. It's what usually is called out there ransomware as a service. Hence, this was one of the main targets of this uh, large campaign, global campaign against ransomware that we are witnessing. And we were going to talk about that because this is, to me, a 
what I call a multi-layered campaign against ransomware. And this arrestment of these five people that were active in this group, I think most of them in Europe, is one aspect of these uh, many layers of uh, campaign that we see uh, that include international cooperation and law enforcement activities, nation-state capabilities that we didn't see in the past being involved in this effort. For example, we know that wiretapping was used during this investigation to track and find these people. Regulation and other aspects with the goal to reduce the ROI, so to say, of the ransomware crime. In essence, we need to see, we, ha we have to see or to look at the ransomware activity as a business, maybe not a legal one, but a business that works with an equation of cost, profit, and risk. So they need to understand or they need to see that the cost is low, the profit is high, and the risk is low. And while this happens, this is a good business. By arresting these people, this is one approach or one way to have an influence of this equation by increasing the cost of a ransomware criminal or ransomware groups to conduct the ransomware attack because they have less people or it's harder for them to find these people or to hire them because of the risk, by increasing the risk. And this is one way, and we are going to talk about many other ways, this campaign is trying to reduce the ROI of a ransomware attack. Yeah, I love your description of the multi-layered attack because that really is what it is. And another one of those attacks was when the Department of Justice seized a million dollars in cryptocurrency from another Revil affiliate, also very heartening to the law firms who have been ransomware victims. And I think I have that number wrong, so you correct me when you answer. But how were they able to seize it? And do you think that that's a measure that the government will now be looking to take more often? First of all, what I read today that the, the number went up to $2.3 million. This is definitely one of the effective ways to conduct this multi-layered uh, campaign. And the way this is done, well, a cryptocurrency, in order to use cryptocurrency, and cryptocurrency is the way that these uh, criminals get their money, you need to have a wallet. A wallet is a piece of software, essentially, that uh, stores your currency and enables the, the interaction or the, the use, usage of this uh, cryptocurrency in different ways. Essentially, there are, there are several ways to identify or to track the usage of uh, wallets. And this is part of the, I would say, the forensic investigation or the, in general, the investigations that either agencies or companies conduct during attacks. And by doing that, they are able to identify or link the wallet with some activity to the extent that they are able to block them or confiscate them. And this is what we have been seeing. For that, obviously, we need several capabilities. And once the government or the nation becomes involved, we see additional capabilities in this game, which increases the um, probability of tracking a wallet or contacting it to a to malicious activity. And, and again, it goes back to reducing the profit in this game of ransomware attack. So when ransomware criminal, when the money that he disappears, they're reducing their profit, they're increasing the cost for future attacks because they need to find alternative ways to get the, the money. And by that, we are breaking and again, trying to, or, or trying to have an impact on this equation of ROI or 
or the uh, cost and, and profit of a ransomware attack. So to me, it's one, it's another layer and a very important one in fighting against the uh, ransomware plague. I like the idea that we're making it riskier too, but that's your question, John, so I'll let you take that one. I was also going to add, though, I think it's it's particularly challenging because, you know, Bitcoin is, is the primary cryptocurrency that they use, and, and Bitcoin is like through the roof. Its value is like skyrocketed. And so you talk about that risk-reward thing, you know, the reward is huge now. <laughs> You're right. You're right. This is part of it, definitely. Yeah, it makes it very challenging. But on to the, the next thing is that a lot of our lawyer friends, though, they're surprised, but they're also delighted that the Department of State is, you know, we now have rewards now. They're offering up to $10 million for the name or the location of any any key Reval leader and up to $5 million for information about any of the Reval affiliates. And we've never really even ever seen that before, certainly not to that extent, that amount of money. What do you think, Ariel? Do you think those bounties are going to work and that we're going to see more of them? in the future? I see three different aspects here in this uh, attempt to add this layer. And again, think about the uh, many layers that we are adding into this campaign. So we need to see that as, a, uh, as one, of, one of many layers. But when I see this, I see three aspects of it. One is the, the actual declarative aspect. So by saying that, what, what the government or what the authorities are saying is that we are serious with regards to our campaign. And this is uh, by itself a valuable move or a valuable activity because it is part of the general approach or general uh, message that they are trying to convey to the world and to the cyber criminals that they are serious with regards to this campaign. So this is the declarative aspect of it. The second one is the deterrence that comes with, with the fact that now these people are worth money in terms of they're under risk of being betrayed by their friends or by, by others. And think about the, the cyber criminal that until now, you know, what was the risk for him? He was involved in ransomware, probably not very serious risk. Now they're adding another layer of risk. He now needs to be concerned about his, you know, his relationship with others, his friends, his uh, peers, whatever it is. And that adds another layer of influence on that equation of cost, profit and risk. So this is the second uh, aspect of it. And the third aspect of it is the actual fact that by doing that, with some probability, the Department of Justice is able to, will be able to get additional information, intelligence, and then catch the bad guys. So this is only one aspect of it. The deterrence and the, the actual declaration are other aspects of it. If you combine the three of them, I think... The impact, you know, time will tell, time will tell, right? But I think the, the impact of the potential impact here is there. And I think that adding that to the general multi-layered campaign is a wise decision. And on the other side, what the risk is. So we might as well try it. And if it works perfect, if it doesn't, we can always stop, stop that. But I am optimistic. I think this is a wise and a very correct step in the process. We join you in that. We were very excited to read the news stories about all of these initiatives, and they were all taken pretty much at the same time. So it seems as though we're coordinating our efforts, which is wonderful. Let's talk about CISA and the FBI, who were issuing ransomware alerts for holidays and weekends that, that really ramped up before Thanksgiving. And of course, it continues now. But obviously, during holidays and weekends, people are not generally working, not in the office 
office, etc. We just love to see these warnings. But how common are these kinds of attacks from what you see, Ariel? You know, the bottom line is that there are definitely very common. First of all, we need to see, we need to look at the numbers in general. And just to give you a sense of, of what what is happening with the ransomware, because, you know, some people ask, is there a real increase in ransomware? It's just higher profile. And the fact it does is that between 2019 and 2020, there was an increase of about 62% worldwide in ransomware attack. But if you look at North America, it was 158% increase. And when you look at the first half of 2021, you see that the number ne- nearly doubled number of attacks. This is yet another fact and figure that will give us a sense of what is happening. The collective cost of a ransomware attack reported to the FBI during 2020 increased by more than 200%. And the global ransomware cost uh, expected for 2021 is about $20, $20 billion. And just to give, you a, to give us all a sense of the, the increase in ransomware attack, in 2015, the number was 325 million. So from 325 million to $20 billion, this is the general increase in ransomware attacks. And when we look at this very sensitive periods of time of weekends and holidays, and definitely the combination between weekends and holidays, we also see a specific increase in that period of time. We've seen that during May 2021, we see that uh, we see, we've seen that during Mother's Day and during uh, Memorial Day weekend, we in Mitiga have seen that as well. And the question is, why is that happening? So definitely, what hap- what happens during these weekends and holidays is that there is less attention and less awareness. Smaller groups, if at all, are there waiting for or defending the different organizations. And more so, it's harder to find people and to communicate in the middle of a crisis because, you know, because of the holidays. So there is a direct impact on, A, the early detection and the rapid response. But even just having a good enough situation and awareness of what is happening and an efficient crisis management, all that is reduced or impacted by the fact that people are in a holiday. And this is the best moment for a cyber attack. So definitely the attackers are aware of it. They leverage that. We see that. And I think it was a great thing to do to increase the awareness of the organizations and, and generals of the public of the sensitivity of these times for ransomware attacks. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. 
Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Law Firms Take Notice. The U.S. is cracking down on ransomware gangs. Our guest is Ariel Parnez, Chief Operating Officer at Mitiga. He is a retired colonel of the Israel Defense Forces 8200 Cyber Unit, where he served 20-plus years in a wide range of roles in the areas of intelligence, information technology, offensive and defensive cyber operations, and cyber warfare. He was awarded the prestigious Israel Defense Prize for Technological Breakthroughs in the Cyber Field. Well, Ariel, the Ranger Locker Ransomware Group has threatened to reveal the data of victims who contact the FBI or other authorities. In other words, if, if they report that they've, they've had this ransomware attack. So, so given the data breach and other laws that we have here in the U.S., do you think this is going to have any impact at all on whether or not people actually report these breaches? Well, I think, you know, when you look at the ransomware attack, in the middle of a ransomware attack, and you try to understand what is that decision maker is doing during this crisis, Essentially, what they are doing is trying to calculate the cost of each alternative, right? One alternative is to pay, the other one is not to pay, and then you need to estimate the cost with a high level of uncertainty with regards to the different aspects of the cost. Who's the attacker? What access do they have? Which data do they have? Uh, what are their regulatory implications, etc.? What these guys are trying to do is to leverage the, uh, their position and the threat to have an influence on the equation on their favor. And the bottom line is that I think that in some cases it will have an influence, but then what we need to do is to uh, fix it by having influence on the other side of the equation, by improving the readiness of ransomware attacks so that this threat will be less relevant by increasing the cost of payment and by more so increasing the value of cooperation with the authorities so that the equation will tend again towards the side of not paying. Well, here's hoping. The federal government is now sanctioning cryptocurrency exchanges, wallets, and individuals who aid ransomware gangs in converting cryptocurrency. And it strikes us that imposing sanctions may be difficult given the secrecy involved. We've got to do some penetration work here. But it is another attack on the ransomware gangs. What do you think about this tactic, Ariel? I think this is a great tactic to add into this multi-layered campaign. And I think it is about following the money, right? Following the, follow the money approach. And it definitely increases the cost of the attacker because now he needs to find another way to, to get the money and to, to have access to it. And it deters cryptocurrency exchanges, so it increases the risk for some of these criminals. So I think essentially that this is a very effective step if it is done in a consistent manner, in a broad manner. Otherwise, if it's just one time, then it doesn't have any influence. 
Covor recently published a report that some of the government measures that we've been talking about so far today have really been causing the ransomware gang, putting pressure basically on the ransomware gangs, which certainly is the intended impact. What the ransomware gangs now are doing, though, is shifting from what Covor called big game hunting to mid-game hunting. What do you think that's going to mean for law firms? Yeah, so definitely what we're seeing is a shift towards a different profile of victims, probably smaller uh, organizations, smaller tickets, but a larger uh, number of of, uh, these attacks. And when you look at the law firms, most of them, a large number of them, you can see uh, that as low-hanging fruit for cyber criminals. Because on one side, they have um, access or they have storage of uh, very valuable information. And on the other side, most of them, not all of them, but most of them have less maturity or less orientations towards security, cybersecurity. That makes the equation of cost versus profit and risk more uh, appealing for for cyber criminals, hence uh, making them potential victims. You may not know the movie Ghostbusters. I'm not sure. Do you know that movie, Ariel? Yeah, I definitely do. Okay. (laughs) Well, in in that movie, these three who are busting ghosts, the kind of tagline there is, who are you going to call? So we were very amused on uh, November 16th when a congressional review report effectively said that ransomware victims don't know who they're going to call. So we've seen a shift from calling the FBI, the regional office usually, and its Internet Crime Complaint Center to contacting CISA instead which is very interesting to us. CISA seems to be gaining a lot more power. Where is this confusing situation heading, and who do you think the ransomware victims should contact first? I think, Sharon, I'm going to challenge the question, but I want to start by answering that. I I think, you know, I understand the confusion, and I also understand that there is a transition here and shift of uh, attention and and maybe responsibilities within, within the system. But if I had to uh, give a very simple answer, you need to call the experts when something's happening. And the experts, it depends on, uh, on who you are and who you're, you're working with. It could be insurance, uh, your insurance, cybersecurity insurance. It could be, could be your legal firm that is working with you. Or it could be an incident response vendor such as Mitiga or others. These are the uh, first calls that I, this is the first call that I would recommend you do. Once you have them with you, they will be able to guide you through uh, the process and connect with the right authorities and, and regulators and, and other, other components of this crisis management that you have to, to have. But challenging your question, you know, the question needs to be, why do you want to wait until something happens to call them? Call them in advance. Make sure that you have a plan, a crisis plan. So then, so that when something happens, you know who you need to call, what's the phone number, uh, and you even maybe you know had an, ex- an exercise and, and tested your readiness. So I think you know, shouldn't be waiting for something to happen. I'd rather have that call before it happens. 
Well, we certainly believe in incident response plans, and we, we lecture about that frequently. But our answer to the question, which is a little different than yours, which is fine, but our answer is always call your data breach lawyer first because the data breach lawyer knows everything about all of this because they do it all the time. And the data breach lawyer is going to want to be in at the very beginning before you call any of the other people on that list. And so that's our recommendation. But, you know, good people could disagree on these things. And we've certainly heard others say, you know, call the FBI or call the digital forensics people first, whatever. So I was going to add, apparently everyone agrees, though, that you're not going to call the Ghostbusters. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, that part is true. (laughs) Ariel, last month, the U.S. financial regulators, they announced that the banks have to report cybersecurity incidents to federal officials within 36 hours. And it looks like there's going to be some similar timing is going to be imposed on the critical infrastructure owners and operators, you know, as well as leading pipeline, rail, air transport companies. So the question that lawyers are certainly asking us these days is whether there's going to be similar requirements imposed on on the law firms. What do you think about that? Essentially, the answer is yes. And if I need to elaborate, first of all, we already have demand for notification by GDPR, Article 33, within 72 hours, or if I need to quote, without undue delay and were feasible not later than 72 hours after having aware, become aware of an incident, you need to report to the authorities. This is for specifically for, for GDPR. And I think what you see in GDPR, what we saw in GDPR a few, few years ago, what we are seeing now with other regulators in, in the US, this is a trend that will continue. And that's part of uh, allowing this uh, or supporting this multi-layered campaign. So, yes, I think that uh, we will. We need to expect that to happen. I don't know if it's going to be 36 hours, 72 hours, but it doesn't really matter. The fact is that you will need, we will need to report and react rapidly. We certainly agree with you and think that that's coming as well. Uh, just a question of when and what the what the hour time limit is. But we want to thank you so much for being with us today, Ariel. It was fun to discuss with someone who kind of does what we do. It was fun to discuss some of these issues. And I, I think you're as excited as we are about what we're seeing on the horizon with this multi-layered approach and a very well thought out approach as well. So it was just a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, John. It was great being here and talking with you. It's a great pleasure. And I think it's a very important part of this campaign is also education and awareness. And you're doing that. And this is great. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple podcast. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us. And you can find more about Sensei's Digital Forensics, Technology, and Cybersecurity Services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on legaltalknetwork.com and in iTunes.